This week on FX Guide TV. We check out the development process behind EA Games' latest installment of SSX. This and more coming up next. This podcast is brought to you by the new FXPHD Resolve 2012 Fast Forward course. Download 10 classes instantly covering DaVinci Resolve 9 and take your color grading skills to the next level. Visit fxphd.com. Hello and welcome to FX Guide TV. Well, it may be summer in the north, but down here at the Sydney Tech Compound, it is the middle of winter. So it is appropriate that this week we are looking at the new EA game, SSX. John, who isn't a bad ski himself, has this interview on the new snowboarding game. Why don't we first start by uh, talking about this project in comparison to the previous SSX? Right, so SSX3, uh, we shipped one mountain with three peaks and 15 tracks. And on SSX, the new one, which we just call SSX, uh, we decided we wanted to ship the entire world, uh, which is just insane. So we then tried to narrow it down to maybe 300 tracks, and eventually we shipped with 156 tracks. Uh, but it's still, you know, at least 10 times what the first game was. Now, your background is actual vi visual facts prior yeah. to EA. And, and I'm curious, actually, in looking at this with effects side, we obviously has a big feature yeah. film and bracket. Are there parallels between that process and the gaming development process? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I came, like you said, from visual effects, or I did feature animation as well at DreamWorks. And uh, the last game we did was uh, literally shoving half a feature film, 42 minutes, into a game. And so, I was in charge of that movie, and we, we did um, you know everything from typical animation, mocap, etc., to actually teaching people what is compositing, right? So there are similarities and obviously differences, but uh, for the most part, you know, modeling, texturing, animation, how things get put together, pipelines, workflows—it's all the same. Well, uh, one aspect of the development of the game is art direction. You've got these multitude of peaks now, which is yeah. awesome, but they each need to have a, a character. Yeah. source, don't they, to drive the gameplay. Talk, talk about the art direction process for the various yeah, locations. Yeah, it was fascinating. I mean, for so we've got ten ranges in the game at this point, um, and each one of them had to be completely different. And so we literally wrote a whole bunch of rules that would be the differentiators. Um, and then from that, we based our art direction on that. But ironically, some of those rules came from original art direction and concept art, and this is one of the games that I've worked on that's the closest to a feature film, where we had just reefs and reefs and reefs of concept art and positioning boards and you know color charts and timing and uh, it was just phenomenal base to start from and then we had to sort of sift through it and pick elements out of that to say this is Alaska. And why was that important in this case I mean to drive the game? I mean is it different from past game from the previous game? Well the previous game was I mean, very... One mountain obviously. Yeah but one <laughs> mountain arcadey yeah don't really care about the sun. In mm. this game because you are going around the world uh, and arguably we were changing the, where you're going, we wanted it to feel different so that if you were in New Zealand, it would feel different than if you were in the Alps, for instance. Um, and so from a gameplay perspective, the more different you can make it feel, obviously the more interesting and more it feels like the world's huge to explore. 
right? If, if all of them were sunny day, then after a while you'd be like, well, why do we really need to go to Antarctica? Because I've already played in Siberia. What specific aspects did you have to play with in those, in the various mountain ranges? Yeah, so we had everything from lighting to terrain type, and we differentiated terrain type, so types of crusty snow, um, to the actual shape of the terrain. So terrain style and type were two different things. Uh, we had weather, so f falling snow, blowing snow, a uh, ton of visual effects. We had what we call a color cube, but essentially Photoshop literally running in the game so you could make things darker or more saturated, less saturated, put a bleach bypass on if you wanted to. Um, so we had a lot of tools at our disposal to sort of, how can you, it's almost like grading a film where how can you make this feel like it's different. Right, now, well let's start now with building the actual mountains and so forth. How did, you, how did that process work? Did you actually start with the real world terrain? Yep, so the very first tool we ever prototyped and what got people excited and actually sold the idea that we could build 300 games was literally taking data from NASA and you get essentially a height field map and plump it into the computer, spit it out and actually look at real world mountains. Uh, we found quickly that that's not actually that exciting. Right. So we had to exaggerate from there. Well, it's like a lot of visual effects movies, actually. Yeah. I mean, you take a look at the perfect storm. They start out with realistic yeah. wave height. And, and you're like, that's it, really? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, now, from that process, there's, it's a little bit different uh, from feature films, obviously, because you're actually having to deal with some physical limitations of gameplay, memory issues, yeah. coding and stuff. So how, how did you deal with that? You can't just make a giant expanse yeah. of the Alps or the Himalayas. No, it's a great point. I mean... We literally had tech that would carve areas around from where the player was and divide out further from the player. So we literally had stepping of what mounted detail. So closest up was actually a sub-D mesh. But as you got further, we got into a polygon and then what we called a proxy, which is a lower polygon. And then even from there, it was a vista, which is essentially a mountain in the background. So we had tools that would automatically, at runtime, as the game is playing, decimate essentially the mesh in front of you. There's a feeling when you're playing the game that you actually have a wide expanse, like you have the run of the mountain. Yeah. But you don't actually in the end yeah. because you can't actually contain that with the Absolutely. Gameplay. Yeah. And I mean, our biggest challenge is literally that where if we did have everything, we couldn't possibly load it all. Or if we did load it, which we tried at the beginning, it looked not that good. So we had to obviously put giant mountains or cliffs, but we didn't want the cheesy, here's a gate, don't go past the fence because then it feels less about that I'm in the back of Mount Everest and more that I'm on a ski run. And so we wanted it to feel that there was no limits, but obviously we had to impose them. So we used mountains and rocks and cliffs and tunnels and whatever else we could think of that would look real, but would still limit people from going too far. Okay, so you start out, how, how would you actually design the pass from a starting point? I mean, how, what did that process look like? Yeah, I mean, the visual aid will definitely help, but mm -hmm. um, we literally start the very first thing is just concept art, photos, mm -hmm. concepts to figure out what is this mountain all about. And then from there we did a paper design, what we call it, but basically drawing a path down and then drawing other paths and then making them meet and, and not meet and branch. And then from there we then took the paper design and then had a mountain drawn in 3D and then we would position that onto the actual mountain. So this track that I drew actually wound around the mountain like this and maybe at this specific spot there'd be a bridge or a train or a vista that I would look out at. So we'd literally, in the actual concept art of this 3D mountain, as it comes around, we would call out moments. So that mountain path is, is actually a physical mountain or a mountain that you've tweaked? At to that be point, the it was, one? yeah, it was a tweaked SSXified right. mountain that okay. was more fun. Okay, so you put the path in yep. into that build the mountain 
yeah. around it yeah. effectively. Yeah. And then you start adding the things that keep barriers and, and That's people right. within the path. Yeah. And we had everything, like we talked about it before, with actual cliffs of mountains to things that we called super snow. So if you got too far into a glacier, let's say, the forces of the snow, the wind and, and the steepness would actually push you back. So it would look like you could go further and maybe it would crest and you could keep going, but mm -hmm. eventually it would push you back. And are these all in-house tools that you developed yep. to actually do this yep. or some off-the-shelf software? We partnered uh, quite extensively with side effects. Mm -hmm. uh, used Houdini to do it, um, but we also had a lot of really smart, actually ex-side effects guys working with us. Um, so we built tools in EA, both in Houdini and outside with like Python scripting and stuff that could all glue together to do this. I think what's an important aspect of your production pipeline, though, is the fact that it's actually a procedural pipeline, yeah. which I think probably really helps serve your purposes in yeah. quick game development or yeah. efficient game development. Yeah, and then the, the great part about that is you can literally iterate on any of the steps. So change the snow type and it pumps through, or change where the trees are and it pumps through. Um, and then for specific tracks, we would actually load it back into Maya and handcraft little areas that we really wanted to, assuming that we knew everything was locked at that point. And then, but once you apply the texture, once you apply things like snow type or atmospheres, does that impact the memory use and does that impact things in um, that combination or not? Different terrain types did, mm -hmm. uh, mainly because we have to start casting where am I all the time. So we used ray tracing t type technology to say, am I on a rail, am I on deep snow, ice, what am I doing with my ice axe, etc. Um, so we did have to limit how many types that you would actually be looking for. Right. And then um, talk about, in comparison, the actual rendering look. Obviously, you mentioned it very arcade. It was a long time ago. Yeah. Actually, this game's been in development for a while, and yeah. technology's changed. Yeah. Um, what kind of advancements have happened in the last several years to yeah. enhance the realism? Because it's beautiful scenery in it. Oh, thank you. I mean, one of the, so there's a couple of good tools out there, like a World Builder, for instance, to build mountains really quickly helped us quite a bit. Um, but also, the tech is getting better at EA, so we have that Photoshop running all the time, or we, for this game, we developed atmospheric scattering, essentially. So the actual light coming from the sun would get scattered through the atmosphere, and it would bend and change depending on how high the sun was, what color, what time of day, etc. And how much of that is and it ends up needing to be effectively programmable by the user? I mean, does the user have some control over that environment so they can play at night yeah. in, the day, in the day? We well. thought about that. I mean, at one point, the game was going to be totally dynamic. So mm -hmm. if I came in, you would literally see where the sun is in the world, and it would change. But it got to the point where y you lost the differentiation between the mountain that you thought you were going to and what the actual sun was doing to the mountain. So a good example is in Antarctica. You are playing against cold, and you can't go into the shade. But if the sun suddenly drops and the shadows are really long, good luck finishing the track. So we had to sort of lock that off and have specific lighting for each of the tracks. Were there technical reasons for that as well, in complexity no, not really. or just, you It know. was just this sheer scale of the game at that point. We right. were shipping the world and it was just too much to tune everything really nicely. But there were limits for things like lighting steps. You did end up having yeah, to limit certain aspects right. of that, right? Yeah, so in real time you get a sense of how much coverage does a light have in the actual screen at any one time. And if you have too many of those, it gets really dense from a calculation standpoint. You have to do several iterations, which gets costly. So we did have to, we limited how many of the actual physical lights we placed, uh, depending on what you would see and, and basically draw distance. And one thing that's always kind of been curious for me is, uh, and just not being familiar with a uh, game development process, is camera placement. Uh, how, how does that work as well? Is it similar to like, 
I would imagine like an Olympic coverage of a ski event yeah. or something like that. Or h how does that work actually? Yeah, we took a long time to sort of figure out what would work from a gameplay perspective, but also look nice. And uh, we started at one point when I first started the team, I wanted to do the snowboarding video where in a frame, the guy would start from the top and drop to the bottom. So from a camera perspective, as he's jumping, the camera would swing to the side and he would jump through the frame or maybe the camera would follow him off a huge jump. Um, that actually is really hard to control when you're playing the game because as the camera swings and you're spinning like this, suddenly you don't know in the controller to go left or right or mm -hmm. do I need to react to the camera, yes, no. Um, we also did things like uh, time warping, so as you went you could actually slow time and go into bullet time. Um, again, it gets difficult and so that's actually in the game if you, if you know how to do the Easter egg, kind of turn mm -hmm. it on, but most people don't do it because it's, it's hard to control. Right. And that actually speaks to a little bit of your background, yeah. actually, prior to entering that as well, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I had a lot of fun with that, actually. Yeah. Um, talk about also just the rendering quality that we're seeing in gaming today. I mean, philosophically, you're seeing a lot of technology, I think, in games being applied to visual effects yeah. right, and rendering, especially. Yeah. I mean, there's some things that Flame, for instance, is doing. They're actually pulling tricks from shaders in yeah. games. Yeah. Um, we're, I mean, how do you see gaming yourself impacting? your previous yeah. role in visual effects. It's pretty interesting. I mean, one of the big drivers that you see, it's going to come online, and you've already seen tests on the web, is real-time ray tracing, right? I mean, mm -hmm. if I can render a shot and play with a shader in real time, how many times can I iterate through making it shinier, darker, wetter, whatever? Uh, that's fascinating. And that's coming from the game side, right? Mm -hmm. um, or rendering engines at that point. You could literally set up a render farm that could render a whole shot or sequence in a film in a couple minutes. How often are you actually hitting up against technological <laughs> hurdles in, in now? All I mean, the time. All, all the time. Yeah. I mean, is that a real Absolutely. critical aspect of your development process and yeah. maybe reining back and compromise? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, on the last game I worked on, Fight Night Champion, that was number one where at one point we were starting with a RenderMan flow and we could make it look amazing, but it was just too much for the game. So when you saw a RenderMan with all the great shaders and really sort of handcrafted look, against the game engine, it just looked terrible. So we went to the game engine and you used the game engine for everything, but at that point you're really limited to what you can do. Um, so because in Fight Night we wanted to feel really smooth, you mm -hmm. couldn't tell if it was a movie or not. In fact, as a user, you wouldn't know it's a movie. Um, we couldn't do a ton of compositing tricks, for instance. Or as soon as I started putting in fire or blood spraying or everything else, if it gets too realistic, it doesn't look like the game anymore. Right, and so where do you think, I mean, where do you see te where do you see technology needing to get to take to the next level? I mean, where do you see it in the future in the next couple of years? Yeah, I mean? the, the GPU rendering really excites me, where mm -hmm. if we can start rendering really quickly, again, iteration time is just going to go through the roof, which is going to mean better art. It has to. Right, and what about memory issues? Are there things like that that happen? Yeah, the, um, the consoles we're on right now are uh, we're always bumping up against the limit. At some point, that'll go away, or it'll get bigger, and we'll be able to do a lot more. Um, cloud computing is quite interesting too. Where if I can, you can already do this on like a PlayStation Vita mm -hmm. or some other similar device, where it'll render on the cloud on a service and actually play a, a higher fidelity game on a little handheld device that I'm playing. Right, so it's only a matter of time before you see that in your phone and everything else. That's well, really interesting work. I appreciate you taking the time to talk yeah. to us. Thanks. Thank you. Well, Andrew, we just wanted to do a bit of a shout out to some of the amazing stuff that's happened in the last couple of weeks with the professors from FXPHD. Now, professors at FXPHD are a pretty talented bunch at the best of times, but boy, they've had an amazing couple of weeks. Starting with 
Wayne Robson, who has been doing courses with an FX PhD, who was, well, if you're like me, you watched the opening ceremony of the London Olympics. It was spectacular. A lot of artists contributed to what I think was just terrific Olympic Games. But there was a shot in that of uh, Jesse Owens, who was never filmed winning any of his four Olympic gold medals at the Berlin Games. And because that historical footage was just not available, they didn't have it, they decided to completely reconstruct it digitally. I saw that shot, it was uh, before uh, the Hey Jude stuff from Paul McCartney. I didn't even pick it as being digital, I thought it was 100% live action, just so good was Wayne's work. So a huge shout out to him. Apparently they had an audience of like half the planet, which was just extraordinary. Um, also, almost uh, at the same time just before that, Wes Ball had announced uh, that his feature film was being picked up and being produced from the short that he did called Ruin, and we highlighted that over at FX Guide now. Art of Rendering Story, great short film. I'm stoked that he's now got his own feature up. Speaking of features that are up, <laughs> Gareth Edwards, who of course has been doing courses here at FX PhD, has now moved into doing major feature film work and took a kind of trailer of a trailer, like a sneak peek, I guess, of Godzilla to Comic-Con and apparently set their halls alight. They were just raving about this footage from Godzilla that uh, Gareth has done. Gareth is probably one of the most admired professors we've ever had at FXPHD for his innovative film style. So huge shout out to him. And then Aaron Denua and the guys at Brainstorm Digital who have been nominated for Boardwalk Empire. What a great show and just how terrific that they've been recognised with an Emmy nomination. Incredibly well deserved. Which brings me to our last professor, another academy, though a different one now, the Film Academy. Sheena Dougal, who's doing our VFX course, of course, this term at FX PhD, has been made a full member of the Academy. But that's not the reason I'm mentioning uh, Sheena. It's the work she's doing with charities in Africa right now. So on your screen is a URL that you can go to to learn more about the work she's doing. She's doing a course at FX PhD, but she's just taken a couple of weeks off to go over to Africa for a water project, bringing water to communities that need it in Africa. And we just implore any of you, if you can, if you're in a position to give something, to go to the URL and give what you can. It's a terrific cause and we just want to really get behind Sheena in this really good work that she's doing. And of course, congrats to all the professors for just an outstanding couple of weeks. I guess I'm dumbfounded. Back to you, Ange. Thanks, guys. And don't forget, if you like this podcast, you may also like our other podcasts, such as the FX podcast, the VFX show and our digital cinematography podcast, The RC. Well, until next time, when we're in LA for SIGGRAPH 2012. See ya. For more industry news, in-depth features, podcasts and forums, check out fxguide.com. And for visual effects training, check out fxphd.com.